0: Hey, I hope that you've enjoyed this very fall-like last day of summer. Um, I like fall once we're into it, uh, but I never really like the transition from summer to fall. I, I don't know why, but I'm enjoying this cool down, um, and I'm, I'm enjoying peach cobbler, so uh, there's, there's winds along the way for all of us. Um, as I have said at the beginning, we're, we're tracing our way through the story of Exodus. Uh, I've said this a few weeks now, but Exodus is the story about humanity on a crash course with divinity. It's beautiful and it's terrifying. It's a masterpiece that is quite messy at times, as we will see tonight. Um, Through the part of the story that we're looking tonight, I hope that you're reminded that even when everything goes wrong, even when everything falls apart, God is still with you. For those of you who've been following along, uh, tonight we're going to be finishing up chapter four. We're going to go through all of chapter five, and then we're going to be just dipping our toes into chapter six by hitting just the first verse. Um, now when I, when we started this series, this wasn't necessarily the the plan, but so far in the series, I've read the entirety of the book to you up to this point. And there just hasn't been a lot of stuff that's been easy to cut out or skip over. Um, that will change, but so far that's been the case. So my plan tonight is to continue on that way. I'm going to read a bit of, of this section at a time and stop along the way when there's something to talk about. Okay. I guess it's not okay too bad. Uh, when we left off last week, Moses had just heard God speak to him th- through a burning bush. No big deal. Uh, God tells Moses that God is sending him to Egypt to confront Pharaoh and lead the Hebrew people out of captivity into the promised land. Moses, tr- <laughs> Moses tries to argue with God, which seems like a bad idea, uh, and, and actually tries to get out of doing this several different times. But in the end, God sends him on his way. And that's where we're going to pick up. This is Exodus chapter four, starting in verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Jethro's a really nice guy. But uh, this might not pop out immediately to you, since there's been a week in between the last time we read anything, but Moses isn't really telling the truth here. He's not going to Egypt to check and see if any of his people are still alive. He's going to confront Pharaoh, and that's a big detail to leave out. I'm not sure if we're supposed to read into how he phrases this or not, but it's interesting. It could be that, uh, it could just be showing that uh, he's still not really sure about all of this, so he's not gonna (laughs) tell someone else about it. Like, he's not sure if this is what he's supposed to be doing. Or he could just be a normal human and think that it might not be great or, or the wisest thing for him to broadcast that he just heard a voice in a bush that was on fire that didn't burn up and it told him to go upend an empire. I, I don't know what's going on here necessarily between the two, <laughs> you can decide. Uh, verse 19, now the Lord, remember last week we talked about anytime you see the Lord in all caps, it's not really what it says there, it says the personal name for God. And the Lord is a way to not say the personal name for God. Now the Lord has said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. If you remember last week, uh, God gave Moses a bunch of signs to use to convince the people and to convince Pharaoh that what he was saying is true. One of them is he has a staff. If he throws it on the ground, it turns into a snake. If he picks it back up, it becomes a staff again. It's a good thing to have. When you're trying to convince a guy to just let a bunch of people go. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Jeez. Okay, so there's something we need to talk about here. God says Pharaoh isn't going to listen to him at first because God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. That's odd. This kind of makes it seem like God is going to purposely prevent Pharaoh from being a decent human being and having some compassion and relenting. What's the deal with that? Uh, There's a lot of debate about this, and there has been for centuries, uh, as we'll find with a lot of things in Exodus. I'm not sure there's really a a very satisfying conclusion here. But I think it's important for us to understand from an ancient Near East perspective, from from an ancient Near East Jewish perspective, ultimately God was the cause of everything. So you could trace the entire chain of causation of any event and ultimately end up tracing it back to God. So saying God hardened his heart is the same as saying Pharaoh's heart was hardened or Pharaoh hardened his own heart. All three of these descriptions will will be used to talk about the same thing happening throughout this text. All of this is ultimately about the Hebrew people getting justice for their mistreatment. And anything less than the Egyptians um, reaping what they sowed wouldn't have been just from Israel's perspective. And that will culminate, this justice will culminate with the 10th plague, the Passover, which is what's being alluded to here when God says, God talks about killing Egypt's firstborn son. So let's keep going. This next section is really fun. Uh, verses 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. What? <laughs> what is this? What just happened? The story was going along. Everything was like making sense. There were weird things happening, but like, oh, this is one of the, one of the parts that I really wanted to skip tonight, (laughs) but it felt like a cop-out. This is one of the most confusing and and most debated passages of this book. It's just two verses and people have written volumes about it. I had to write a short little paper about it in seminary and that was enough for me. Uh, We don't fully understand what's going on here. All of a sudden God wants to kill Moses and somehow his son being circumcised takes care of that issue. What? It seems like we're missing a part of the story. Something that happened before to help explain this. What's going on here? Why is God suddenly mad enough that he's going to kill the guy that he's just gone through all this trouble to send to Egypt? doesn't make a lot of sense. Also, there's just lots of issues with the words here. If you noticed when the verses were up on the screen, there's lots of asterisks. Every single one of those, it means that word has some issue with it. So let's just talk about this a little bit. The language of this, these two verses is totally ambiguous to who the object of focus is. Even though in what I just read, it says Moses, named twice. In the Hebrew, his name never appears. It's just the third person pronoun, he or him. The translators of this translation landed on and decided that Moses is the person being focused on here. So they changed the pronouns to be Moses so that we understood what was going on but we don't actually know (laughs) if the person being talked about here is Moses or his son. Okay, so what about when Zipporah talks about her bridegroom? That's gotta be Moses, right? Well, that word (laughs) that's translated bridegroom here, which yes, would imply Moses, doesn't necessarily mean a husband or wife relationship. It could be any family relationship. So we don't really know exactly what Zipporah is talking about here, or even what it means that she's (laughs) saying. Speaking of Zipporah, uh, I finally put out that video that I've been promising the past two weeks talking about the the roles that names play in this story. Um, We put it up on social media. It's up on our YouTube. I think, well, I know it went out in the email today. If you're interested in geeking out about that, please check that out. But Zipporah's name means little bird. Why might that be? I'm not going to tell you. I'd love to hear your ideas. Back to this problematic, weird text. It gets worse. Um, Another thing to note is that feet in Hebrew, in Hebrew culture, is almost always a euphemism for genitals. So when it says she touched Moses' feet with it, again, we don't know that she's talking about Moses, and that doesn't mean feet, which does not make this passage any less weird or any more clear. I will tell you that. Here's what we can be sure of. This is a really weird passage that we don't know what to do with. It seems to foreshadow the Passover where the Hebrew people will paint blood over their doors and will therefore be be saved, saved. It's not a word saved from the 10th plague where all firstborn Egyptian boys are killed, but we'll get to that later. What we can also be sure of is that this is another example in the story of women saving the day. It seems that Moses has neglected to do something, either to himself or his son. So Zipporah steps in and and does what needs to be done. We could spend a lot of time here. It wouldn't get any better. It would get weirder. So I think it's best to not let this distract us anymore and move on, okay? Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, thank God, we're talking about Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the others of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. So Moses meets up with Aaron. They're not in Egypt yet. He fills him in on everything. He says, Check out this really cool trick I can do with this stick, and uh, then it like flashes forward, and all of a sudden they 're both in Egypt together in front of all the leaders of Israel, and they tell the leaders of Israel what 's going on, and the people believe things are going really well we 're going to pick back up that was the end of chapter four, so we 're going to pick back up chapter five verse one afterward, after talking to the elders, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, "This is what the Lord the God of Israel says." let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Sometimes Pharaoh talks like a Dr. Seuss book, which I kind of like. Uh, Again, Moses and Aaron don't exactly say what God told them to say to Pharaoh. They say, let us go so that we can have a festival out in the wilderness so that we can party out in the desert. And this is what ends up happening. Uh, They do go out into the wilderness and have a festival for God. Uh, We'll get to that, but that's not what God says to say. And I'm not sure that that matters too much, that they didn't say exactly what God told them to say, but it's interesting that, like when Moses is talking to his father-in-law, they change it up a bit here. Anyway, Pharaoh reacts exactly how we would expect him to react. You wanna do what for who? I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know who that is. No, you can't go do that. Continuing on, verse three. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. This is, well, the first part of this is exactly what God tells them to say to Pharaoh. And it sounds a little strange. Why does he ask them to go on a three-day journey? There's a couple of things here. A three-day journey probably was like a saying that like, meant a really long journey that was just understood between them. But even so, in this request, there's not really the implication that they'll be free or that they won't come back, which is a big detail. Um, but so they're asking for something that's less than what they actually want, that should be easier for, for Pharaoh to say yes to. And even this easier request, Pharaoh says no. And then there's this part about them warning Pharaoh that if if they're not allowed to do this, God will punish them. God will punish the Hebrews. Or perhaps they're saying God will punish us, like all of us, the Egyptians and the Hebrews. I'm not exactly sure why they don't say God will punish you since that's the reality. But I think it's probably because they don't want (laughs) to start off immediately by threatening this emperor who could just have them killed on the spot. So it's probably smart. What doesn't make a lot of sense is that Again, Moses was given three different signs or miracles from God to try to convince Pharaoh to listen to him and Aaron. And they don't do any of them at this point. So we see here Moses and Aaron maybe not really believing, hedging their bets a little bit. Maybe they're kind of just dipping their toes in to see what will happen, but they're still afraid of what they have to do, which is understandable, but it's an interesting detail. Like they have this like get out of jail free card and they're not using it. Let's continue. This is going to be a big chunk. This is picking up in chapter five, verse four. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they will keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go out and get your own straw, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them saying complete the work required of you each day just as when you had straw and Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed demanding why haven't you met your quota of bricks today or the day before Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh why have you treated your servants this way your servants are given no straw yet we are told make bricks your servants are being beaten but the fault is not with your own is with your own people Pharaoh said lazy that's what you are lazy that's why you keep saying let us go and sacrifice to the lord now get to work you will not be given any straw yet you must produce your full quota of bricks i thought i was going to burp so moses and aaron have really screwed things up here bricks at this time were made through a process of combining i don't fully understand this combining mud and straw somehow that made something really strong uh i guess Straw is really hard. But you can't make bricks without straw, okay? Now not only do the Hebrews have to produce uh, just as many bricks as before, but they also have to go source their own straw from all over the country, which is a huge job in and of itself. The point here is that this is an impossible task, right? They have to double their work while still producing just as much, which is impossible. So they're being worked twice as hard and then beat for not making the impossible happen. Their lives are more miserable than before. All because Maren... Maron is what happens when Moses and Aaron become one person, like a celebrity couple. Moses and Aaron had to go stir up trouble. Let's continue in verse 19. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet him. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious you've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials have put a sword in their hand to kill us. It's a weird way to phrase that. But, uh, so understandably the Hebrew people blame Moses and Aaron, like everything was kind of okay before you guys showed it up. And now it's worse. This won't be the last time this happens. Picking back up verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, why Lord have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Okay. This is kind of self-explanatory. So Moses goes to God and says, what gifts? (laughs) Look, I did everything that I Everything that I said was going to happen, all of the bad things I predicted have come true. Pharaoh's dismissed me. The Hebrews all hate me now. And what it's even worse than I imagined because now they're being oppressed even worse than before. So way to go, God. I told you this wasn't going to work. Whoops. Moses basically tells God, I told you so. Which is kind of funny because God told him, if you remember, several times that Pharaoh isn't going to listen at first. That's going to take a lot of convincing um, from God. But Moses seems to have forgotten all that and says, see God, I told you so. And God says, no, I told you so. <laughs> now you'll see what's up. You're gonna learn today. That's where we're gonna stop in the story tonight. So what's happening here? There was a lot of stuff and there's weird things that happened. There's a whole brick thing that happened. What's going on here? Let's just kind of recap what we've seen. Moses is doing what God said to do timidly, it seems, but he's doing it. He doesn't really tell his father-in-law the truth. He and Aaron kind of dance around the issue with Pharaoh. They don't perform any of the signs that God gave them to convince Pharaoh. And things go exactly how God told Moses they would, namely that Pharaoh wouldn't listen at first. Uh, and, And despite God prepping Moses for this, Moses freaks out when all his fears come to fruition. Pharaoh didn't listen. The Hebrew people are mad at him. Now they're oppressed even more than before. So Moses tells God again, I told you so. And God says, now you're going to see what's up. I spent a lot of time reflecting on this passage and, and what we could learn from it this week. And what stood out to me wasn't mind-blowing. Um, but I think it's a good reminder. And so for the rest of the time, I'm just going to throw a, a bunch of things at you in the hope that something sticks. That wasn't a joke, but thank you. Uh, the, the premise of what I think this, what reminder I think we could be seeing here is that just because things go poorly or get more difficult doesn't mean you aren't doing the right thing. Just because things go poorly or, go, or get more difficult doesn't mean that God isn't still with you. Or maybe without so many negatives in it, even when things don't go right, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong. Even when everything falls apart, God is still with you. Everything falls apart for Moses. And he's still doing the right thing. But it's understandable that he doesn't think so, right? I mean, put yourself in his shoes. His actions have directly made these people uh, who he's trying to save, he's made their lives harder. He must be doing something wrong. But he's not. He's doing exactly what he should do. The current circumstances of your life going well or not, things feeling good or not, don't automatically mean that you are doing the right or wrong thing. Which seems super obvious, right? But our our culture does not really support this thought at all. There's a significant stream of thought in our culture that is all about doing what feels good and avoiding what doesn't. If what you're doing feels good and it's working for you, then that's the right thing to do. If it's not working for you and it feels bad, then it's probably wrong. And if what you're doing leads to any kind of pain or difficulty, then it's definitely wrong. You should stop. But when we make a decision to do what we think is right, the outcomes, especially short-term outcomes, can't be our primary barometer for, for what's right and wrong, at least not universally. Everything has fallen apart from Moses, but he's still ultimately doing the right thing. And I'm not, I'm not really talking about the decisions that we face that, you know, are largely black and white, where there's an obvious right and wrong. Those aren't the things that keep us up at night. What haunts us is the sea of gray that we live in, where, where what's right or what's best isn't always immediately clear. Sometimes doing the right thing makes your life better. Sometimes it makes your life worse. Sometimes doing the wrong thing makes your life better, at least in the short term. Sometimes it makes it worse. All this to say short term outcomes aren't a litmus test or or a reliable indicator of whether we're doing the right thing or not. But if that's how we live our lives, basing all of our actions off of immediate short term outcomes, we're going to constantly feel tossed around by the circumstances of life, of whatever comes our way. We'll constantly change course to try to fix immediate outcomes and end up wasting our lives going nowhere. So how do we ever know that we're doing the right thing or not? When it comes to those big non-black and white life decisions, I'm, I'm not sure that we can ever be 100% sure. At least not in this lifetime. I think at some point we just have to make a decision and step out in faith. But I think that decision has to be tempered and, and, and informed by wisdom and discernment. And both of those things take time and experience for us to cultivate. Both of those things require doing the wrong thing a lot and learning from it. So we need to be non-reactive and prayerful when making decisions. We need to be courageous to take a step of faith in some direction, even when doing so brings our, our worst fears to fruition. We need to be faithful enough to not bolt at the first sign of trouble and see things through. We need to continually leave room for others to speak into our lives and continually leave room for God to speak and, speak and act in our lives. It's not all on us, it's not all about us. We need to be humble enough to admit when we're wrong and change course as necessary. At some point you kinda of just have to do your best and be willing to adjust along the way, right? So wisdom, courage, and humility. I think if we can prayerfully cultivate these attributes, we'll be far less tossed around by life circumstances and the short-term outcomes of our decisions. God is with us, even when we get it completely wrong. I think if we can begin to actually trust that, there's a lot of freedom and opportunity for us. We have to have the wisdom to clearly see what's in front of us. We have to have the courage to act And we also have to have the humility to learn and adjust along the way. So Moses takes a step of courage, even if it's just like a half step and it blows up in his face and it was still the right thing to do. God is still with him. And now he's about to see God act in powerful (laughs) reality bending ways. Moses fails, right? Certainly from a short term perspective, he fails and he's not a failure. You are not a failure. Don't chase short-term validations. Keep stepping out in faith. Keep moving forward with courage. Keep learning and adjusting and repenting as you go. Because God is with you. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would cultivate in all of us, in each of us, Wisdom and discernment. God, would you shape us into people who don't shoot from the hip, but are courageous to act. And would you keep us humble enough to listen to others and to listen to you and to change when we need to. God, thank you for stories that encourage us to not freeze up and let life pass us by because we're scared of doing the wrong thing. God, for whoever in the room needs to take a step of faith, I pray that you will push them in that direction. We love you, God. Amen.